nothing like a nothing like a lukewarm cup of slot machine coffee in a paper cup lined with what appears to be the residue of a kerosene lamp. It's good. You don't like that? What's the matter? <laughs> Hello, gang. I'm on the scene. Yeah, yeah. I hesitate to bring you truly and and clearly, as uh, the late Hemingway would say, I hesitate to bring you the subject of tonight's uh, program. I mean, just bring it out bald face there, you know, like an eagle flapping its way over your backyard. And uh, I just hesitate to do it, so I will approach it with some uh, trepidation and indirection. So, uh, if you will, please, Nick, will you please bring us a little culture first? <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. Did you enjoy that, Nick? Fine. Well, uh, I don't often uh, treat the victims to that uh, sort of thing. That's something I keep very much to myself. People have written to me, and I'm uh, answering the questions here tonight on the air. People have written to me and say, Mr. Shepard, where do you get your inspiration? Uh, how do you, uh, how do you uh, pull it all together? Uh, how at night when you must think great thoughts and, and uh, put magnificent concepts on paper when I'm writing, how do you do this? How do you shut out the rest of the world? Well, all great men have uh, techniques that they use to, uh, let's say, sprinkle the fertile flower of truth and, and liberty and action and beauty into the, the fallow fields of their mind. Uh, a good example of that, of course, is the, is the great uh, detective Dr. Sherlock Holmes. We all know. Uh, how many people know that he had a doctorate? Did you know that he, he did not use it? It was just uh, uh, fleetingly referred to in one of the journals of Dr. Watson that uh, Sherlock Holmes had taken a doctorate. He did not say, however, in what the field was. He was not an M.D. And uh, all of you know, of course, that on um, quiet evenings uh, after he has been confronted with an obviously almost insoluble case that required a tremendous amount of concentration uh, in his digs, and uh, Nick, since you're the reading member of our engineering staff who has uh, graduated from Allied and Lafayette catalogs, and uh, has long since found that the Heath catalog has begun to pall on him and uh, has even found comic books somewhat dull. Uh, where did Mr. Holmes live? Do you recall the street that he lived on? Because it's a famous street. No, it was not. Uh, you're wrong. It was uh, Baker Street. You heard of Baker Street. His digs on Baker Street. What was his address? Seven. The hell? Where were you? What, what a human reading. It's 221B, Baker Street. And what was the name of his landlady? A Mrs. Hudson. And uh, his digs, uh, there was always a great opening to his stories. Uh, often uh, the opening would begin that uh, Holmes and I were enjoying a bit of after-dinner port when suddenly the sound of hoof, uh, the beat of hoof, hoofs could be heard outside on the rainy street and, and Baker Street. It was a cold and rainy night. And suddenly the carriage stopped directly in front of our our um, Holmes's apartment. Instantly, Holmes leaped up and began to pace and said, Watson, a short, stout lady wearing a green cummerbund is about to knock upon our door. She is severely troubled over the death of her cousin Cuthbert, a mysterious event which occurred in North Hampstead Heath. Of course, uh, and, uh, and at that point, Watson would say, Hi, George, how do you know this? And Holmes say, elementary, my dear Watson, elementary. And immediately after the lady had left, uh, Holmes would uh, quietly uh, pick up his violin and say to Watson, this is at least a three-pipe case, Watson. And he would quietly begin to play his instrument to compose his thoughts. He would compose his thoughts. And so it is with me, for those of you who are curious, how uh, I, particularly among the great men of our time, compose his thoughts. There are times when I sit and play a little Mozart on my nose flute. It's a 
a Polynesian instrument that I'll just uh, give you a little sample of how we work it. This is the bridge. Thank you. You can see how with the pull it all together. And it certainly does. It requires an intense amount of concentration. And, of course, it, uh, it waters the somewhat arid fields of aesthetic experience. And uh, I enjoy it. And then there are the other nights when, uh, when I realize that the only thing that will do it to me is my Jews harp. At which point I will pick up my Jews harp and quietly begin to strum an old Sicilian air on the Jews harp. You're curious how a Sicilian air goes on a Jews harp. This goes like this. good sound, in fact. And then, of course, uh, there are times when there's nothing do it. Nothing. Nothing. We'll do it like beer. <laughs> I judge. Now we're getting right down to it, aren't we? Now we're getting down. And as I say, I wanted to approach this somewhat uh, securitously. That tonight's program is about beer. And uh, I'm taking no stand on beer. I mean, no editorial judgment. Merely reporting beer is a fact of our time. As a matter of fact, it has been reported reliably. Have you ever, have you ever thought what would happen if tomorrow morning, magically, just if, if some, some giant uh, uh, beer monster uh, were to suddenly appear on the scene, you know, like the cookie monster? Uh, a beer monster would come. Beer. By the way, that would be a very funny character for them to try on uh, Sesame Street. The beer monster. He's always half pie-eyed, you know. He keeps on beer, <laughs> beer. And they just stick a can of beer in his trap. Uh, speaking of monsters, this is W.O.R. in New York. Yes, uh, Virginia, there is a Mr. Chan. And uh, he, uh, yeah, there really is. You, you've seen the uh, sign there for 500 years on the corner of 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Great Chinese restaurant here in New York. The House of Chan. There is a Mr. Chan. And he started the restaurant 35 years ago, and he is still in firm command. <laughs> and I mean it. And if you'd like to try some really great hot Chinese dishes, did you know that they've discovered, and I'm delighted to hear this, that the younger the, uh, the uh, customer is, the more he's willing to try exotic and hot Chinese dishes. They're really interesting Chinese food. He says the older people tend to always say, oh, I like some chop suey. But uh, if you want some really interesting Chinese food. You ask for, for example, Gung Pao. 
which is a kind of Chinese chicken. It's really great. This is the House of Chan, and they're on the corner of 7th and 52nd. They're open seven days a week, and they're open to midnight. And by the way, if you go in there before the theater, tell them that you want to make a curtain, and they'll take care of you real quick. It's right in the heart of the theater district, the House of Chan, 7th and 52nd Street in mid-Manhattan. When someone knocks on your door and says... Permiso. Be very careful before you answer... Avanti. Avanti. The movie that asks the question, can a filthy rich, uptight American and a poor but overweight girl from London find happiness at their parents' funeral? Jack Lemmon and Juliet Mills in Billy Wilder's new comedy, Avanti, from United Artists. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. At the Translux East and Translux 85th Street Theaters. Oh, here's a, here's a little goodie. Gramercy Park Close of 64 West 23rd Street, New York says, and we quote, Mister, do you really think you can wear a suit for 10 years and then cut it down to fit your kid? <laughs> what an idea. Men's clothes don't wear out these days. They just go out of style. You got two or three suits in the closet right now. If you wore them, your wife would leave you. Your friends would think that you lost your job and the kids would make a fantastic bad face. <laughs> Why don't you go up to the third floor of the factory building at 64 West 23rd Street. Go through the big iron gate that closes behind you with a clang. Take your time, try on all the suits, and then you're going to save yourself a lot of money. That's what Gramercy Park can do for you. Open to 7 p.m., Saturday to 4 p.m., Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's Gramercy Park Close, 64 West 23rd Street. That's third floor, 64 West 23rd in New York. All right, tire fans, here's a little happy note for you here. When the Detroit chooses a new tire for their cars, what do they do? <laughs> well, they do just about what you do, I suppose. They look for durability, dependability, and competitive prices. And uh, according to this spot here, it says we can learn a lesson from them. General's dual steel radial tire was the first polyester and steel radial tire delivered to Detroit for original equipment, the first. The 40,000-mile dual steel radial. By the way, I've gotten letters from people who say, what are these radial tires? You're <laughs> it's radial, L as in London, radial, built with a smooth riding polyester cord radial plied body. So you can get these 40,000-mile dual steel radials from General Tire, and they're available at your local General Tire headquarters. And let's see where the headquarters are. Yeah, in Newark, ask for Ben Robinson at General Tire Service, 857 Freelinghuisen Avenue. And in White Plains, Mike Salvati at General Tire Service on Terrytown Road. Now, let's see. We have another little note here. Since it's Christmas time, it's all about uh, WOR's big Christmas uh, fund. And if you don't know much about this charity, it's a really authentic charity, and it's one that's been going on for many years. Every year at this time, WOR gets a whole collection of toys together, and they're good ones. They're not these little plastic gimmicks. They're excellent toys. And they uh, give them to kids who are in, in the hospitals all throughout the WOR area. And you can help out by sending a check or money or even a dime, anything, uh, any amount of money, check or money order, to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710. That's Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York, 10036. You know... Uh, I was uh, kind of set off on that a couple of, in fact, a few months ago. You might have seen our television show. We did a show on beer. Did you see that show, Nick? You heard about it? 
Well, that show got more response than any single show that the public network did all last year. Male hoopla, yelling, screaming, tub-thumping, cheers, whatever it was. Beer is a controversial subject, like all important parts of life. I mean, you know, like sex, war. These are all important parts of life. You can't get around it. And certainly beer is. You know that beer is one of the first things that, that ancient man actually created? Did you know that? That there is no evidence at, at any point. Uh, no one can find out where beer started. It goes back so early in, in the ancient... They even feel that Neanderthal man had a form of beer. Yes, and, and I'm not kidding. And the, the reason it was so was because he would bring things into his hovel or whatever it is he lived, and uh, he, would, he would put stuff away. Like if, if, say, for example, they ate acorns, for example. They, you know, they, uh, they, they'd eat all kinds of things. Neanderthal man was not, just a, was not just a carnivore. He was that, but he was many things. And he ate, he ate berries and many times he would bring large amounts of berries back that he could not eat. He'd bring them in, the, bring them in, it's in, in short store to stuff. And uh, naturally, the cave or where it is he lived, it, they didn't have air conditioning. Well, he, you know, it was not as good air conditioning as you've got out there in Staten Island and stuff like that, see. And uh, the refrigerator had not been completely uh, perfected at the time. And so what would happen, the berries would lay down in the, in, in the, on the ground, <laughs> and the rain would come in, and uh, they'd be there for a couple of weeks, and the next thing you know, he's got uh, he's got the you know kind of interesting juice there floating around over the berries. It would ferment, and so very early in his life, a Neanderthal man found that the juice of the fermented berry uh, was kind of groovy, <laughs> and uh, of course immediately thereafter, the anti-berry juice crowd grew up in the same cave. There was always there's always one. I mean, you take believe me for every action there's a reaction you can find this true in any any physical uh, it's, it's almost like Newton's law of physics physics you know for every every uh, kick there's three guys who jump up and say hey cut it out there uh, the, this is the reaction it's always there no matter what so uh, no matter what enjoyment man has found over the past 2,000 years or more 50,000 years or more there's always been three wet blankets sitting in the back of the cave who predict the end of civilization, as we know it, he always uses that phrase, the end of civilization because Og is sitting up the front drinking berry juice. I mean, any good caveman should sit around and chew bones. He's up there drinking berry juice, and look at him. You notice how funny his eyes are getting? You notice he's telling dirty stories, and he's pinching the chicks when they come in? Well, okay, uh, this is the action and reaction. And the beer has always... Uh, is always, uh, you know, it's, it's a, in and basically an integral part of, of uh, life. And in many parts of the world, they think of beer as food. We think of it as uh, what keeps television running. Now, as a, matter, <laughs> as a matter of fact, can you imagine what would happen if the beer monster showed up, Nick, tomorrow, and magically he made all beer disappear? What would happen to Chris Schenkel? For God's sakes, what would happen to all the, uh, every, practically every football team overnight will be out of business. Certainly television would totter on its, uh, on its foundation. That would be the end of the ball game. We get rid of the beer commercials. I mean, just uh, think what would happen on a Sunday afternoon. 
pro football's gone, the ball games are gone, everything's gone. There, oh, beer is important, you know. After all, what is it that, that ball players hit? Valentine Blast, right? Yes, sir. They, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, every city has a name like that that it applies to whatever it is the guy hits. What is it in Cincinnati? You know what that is? Huh? Well, they've, been, they've had several. They had a Shane Wing smash. At one time, a ball player used to hit a, a Hudipole. A Hudipole homer. There it goes. It's another Hudipole homer in the upper deck. That's their beer look later, see? So uh, I suppose in, in uh, Philadelphia or, or in Pittsburgh, you hit a foul, uh, a fall city foul. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But the thing is, beer is, a, is, a, is basically a, a staff of life. It's, a, it's an offshoot of, a, we're going to be very serious about it. It's an offshoot of grain, right? And it has a lot of vitamins and everything. Uh, you know, that's, that's why you drink beer, right, friend? Get all that vitamins. Well, there was a story that appeared in the Business Observer, which is an English paper. And uh, maybe you don't know what goes on behind the scenes in beer. I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you tonight. I mean, uh, this is a, we're doing a little pro beer show here tonight. In fact, a lot of our footage on our television show was shot in a, a gigantic brewery in Milwaukee. In fact, it was the Schlitz Brewery in Milwaukee. All you, can, you, you know, all of you know about Schlitz beer. We don't have them as a commercial, so I'm not plugging anybody here. But we shot it in Schlitz. And the one, of the one of the great things that I found, it was the only place I visited in a long time, Nick, really, where the people who worked in the place dug the product. I mean, oh, it, 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 they really dug it. I mean, there was no, there was no, you know, well, what does it take here at the station? You know, you have, uh, I would say out of the station, probably 75% of the people who work here don't listen to the station. You know, it's kind of very hip. So, you know, come on, you, know, you don't listen to the station. You go to you go to a, 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 an automobile dealer and you find that the really hip salesman owns a Ferrari. You know, isn't uh, come on, that's that's for the people out there. See, oh, you did not find this. Uh, let's put it th- this way: this digging gap at the Schlitz place. In fact, every guy I stopped, I would walk around saying, "Here's a guy standing in an apron there, and he's watching a great big vat of beer, and it's a tremendous vat that's about fifty million gallons." And it's going. <laughs> You know, it's bubbling and hissing, and you could see the gigantic uh, head of foam on this enormous tank full of uh, beer that they're cooking. And I'd walk up to the guy and say, hey, uh, excuse me, sir, and say, what do you want? And he's got a big paddle or something. He's working on the beer. I said, I'd like to ask you what it seems to be a silly question. Oh, go ahead. I'm used to silly questions. You ought to hear my wife. So, well, uh, excuse me, sir, but uh, do you like beer? So what are you, what are you talking about? He says, do you like beer? Yeah, do you mind? Do I like beer? Oh, I was obviously like beer. In fact, do you know that in, in the beer companies, the guys where they make the beer, that they have as part of their contract, that's a fact, they have as part of their contract that they get either one or two free cases of beer a week delivered to their house. It's part of their union contract. <laughs> Now that that uh, that shows uh, an absolute dedication to your work. I mean, they take it home with them. And in fact, <laughs> you know, in in the beer places that I we were in several breweries in Milwaukee, and this particular one was Schlitz, and uh, that they have during the day they have a beer break, just like we have a coffee break. They have a beer break, 
And a guy's entitled to so many free beers. So they come along, you know, and he takes his, his beer, and they make about four different types of beer there in this particular brewery. And so we went down to the, we went down to the cafeteria. They have a, a worker's cafeteria they seen between noon. And when you come into the brewery there, you go down to the cafeteria, and, of course, they have a regular it's a little cafeteria. They serve, uh, uh, you know, meatloaf and stuff like that, a regular cafeteria. And they, they pay a, a nominal amount of money for the cafeteria. But at the end of the cafeteria line, just tremendous tank, and it's filled right to the top with ice. And guess what's in that uh, tank? It ain't Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> you see about 500 bottles of beer, and a lot of it's experimental, incidentally, stuff you never see in the market. They, they're turning out uh, separate types of beer. So guy come along, and he grabs a bottle of beer, and he opens it, and uh, here he is. He's all day long. He's been working with beer. Now he's really digging it. He sits down, you know, and he takes out his, he uh, uh, loosens his overalls, and he opens the bottle of beer, and uh, he uh, cuts the meatloaf, and he takes a great big uh, slug of that beer. Ah! <laughs> And I was in the middle of these people. I thought, Gee, you know, uh, we never hear about beer. You know, you, everybody hears about it in commercials, but you don't hear about beer. Well, one of the things that fascinated me in this in the brewery scene there was uh, the top department where they make tops. You know, the, the beer bottle tops, just the caps, and they had great big cases, thousands of cases of caps. And what got me was that some of the caps I'd never heard of the beer at all. I mean, it's a completely alien beer. I never, never, never heard of this kind of beer. And I asked guys, well, what, you know, what, what kind of beer is this? So, well, we make beer for, you know, about like 50 different companies all around the world, and it's shipped under a different cap that is only known at that area. And uh, very rare bottle caps. And I'll tell you, my hands was, were itching because one of the first hobbies I ever had as a kid, and maybe this is why I've always been interested in the subject, was collecting beer bottle caps, rare beer bottle. You ever do this, Nick? You collect rare beer bottle caps. And I'll tell you, I saw some beer bottle caps you wouldn't believe. They had Japanese printing on everything. And a real wild looking. And the great labels, that thousands of fantastic labels that... Uh, that are on beer cans, lithograph labels that go on various cans that you never see in, you know, normal uh, a beer can collecting. And then, of course, I got to know a lot of fantastic beer can collectors. In fact, let's, I got a piece here about it. Let me, let, me listen, let, me, let me show you this. Look at this guy. In fact, they had a piece recently in one of the local papers on this guy. In fact, it was, uh, I think it was a Newsday. But anyway, it says, if beer lovers had a religion, Ernie... Weist, O-E-S-T, would be their god. Ernie Weist has perhaps the largest collection of beer cans, more than 5,000, all different, in the world. Ernie Weist has 63 volumes in which he has pasted 21,000 different beer bottle labels from the U.S. alone. A fantastic. And a set of files containing another 100,000 labels from around the world. He has about 400 beer trays, 600 beer signs, thousands of beer coasters, and an attic full and a basement full of beer lights, beer cocks, beer mugs, steins, beer can openers, beer bottle caps, beer-sponsored litter bags, fly swatters, pot holders, ashtrays, hats, buttons, pins, sweatshirts. <laughs> On top of that, in 1965, he left his job as a 24-year veteran machinist uh, to take a job uh, where he sells beer. <laughs> He's totally devoted. Now, 
I'll tell you more about beer. In the, in the Business Observer, listen to this. This is England. The ability to hold aloft a pint of bitter, peer into amber depths, quaff and vociferously pronounce judgment is generally regarded as a peculiarly male gift. Indeed, some would say it's the very test of manhood. Alas, no. At the risk of sobering up a host of public beer pundits, public beer pundits, of course, are taverns over, over in England, a, a public house, a pub. That's where you get the word pub. It comes from public house. Is a tavern here. Uh, at the risk of sobering up a host of public beer pundits, it must now be revealed that long before the beer reaches their discerning palates, it has been tasted, graded, and approved by two completely expert women. These are great beer tasters. At least that is so far as those who sup at the pubs of Britain's second biggest brewer, Allied Breweries. Down at, down at its Rumford Brewery, the team of tasters includes Miss Margaret Aitken and 26-year-old Miss Joan Stacy. At 10 a.m., do you know this happens in every brewery? Are you curious that in Schlitz I met the tasters? Every morning, this is what happens. And this is in England as well as here. At 10 a.m. sharp on every working day, the ladies join six men in a clinically clean white-tiled room and set about sampling the latest brew. The tasting is a dignified affair. Samples are frighteningly small, and the whole ceremony takes place in almost total silence. They don't talk to each other. I actually saw them doing this in Schlitz every morning. It's all very scientific, says Miss Aiken, a microbiologist and the Rumford Laboratory's manager. She has been tasting beer for nine years now and sees it as a perfectly natural thing for a woman to do. I hope, she says, that we're setting a pattern for other brewers to follow. Mrs. Stacy, also a graduate microbiologist, talks about ale with learned intensity. Few pathogenic organs will survive in beer. Did you know this? In other words, germs. Few pathogenic organs will survive in beer was one of her more reassuring observations. Both enjoy totally a glass of beer socially, but confess that it doesn't do to let on that they have a special and a superior knowledge. After all, a taster's vocabulary could cause grave offense to a self-respecting publican, guy that runs a tavern. Terms like sickly, cloying, unclean, musky, or fusty are all words that are used to describe the taste of beer among experts. Imagine anyone, especially a woman, walking into the Rose and Crown and saying, uh, the best bitter is mawkish tonight, Fred. We would never do that says Mrs. Stacy, and Miss Aiken agrees. Beer, she says, with respect. And listen to this, all of you anti-beer people. Beer, she says, with respect, is both an art and a science. In fact, it is a way of life. Okay? <laughs> well, you know, uh, beer is a, is a strange scene. And uh, have you ever known anybody who made his own beer? Well, you know, that's a growing hobby all around the country, making your own beer. Did you know that? You didn't? You aren't hip to this? Oh, yeah. It's two of the, of, of the fastest growing hobbies in America are making beer and wine. Now, you've all heard of making your own wine. And uh, you can even buy kits. But making your own beer is something else. 
And I had an uncle when I was a kid that really ha was legendary for making his for making beer. It was Uncle Carl. I'm tell I'll tell you the truth. He was a legendary beer maker. And he lived in this apartment in Chicago. You didn't have to have a big place to make beer, you know. He lived in this, this apartment in Chicago. And, and when I was a kid, we would go visit him usually on weekends once in a while when he was sober, you know. And we'd, we'd go there. And one fantastic day, uh, and, and I remember it like it was engraved in my mind. You know, kids are fascinated by machinery, and uh, especially male kids. And there's nothing nothing that will turn on a male kid more than, say, to take him into the cockpit of a 707. He remembered all his life. Uh, anything to do with machinery and some, you know, esoteric process. And I used to get bored. Man, I was always bored, see, when we would visit the relatives. There's nothing that will turn you off quicker than, uh, like, on a Friday night, they announce that you're going to go visit Aunt Mia. Oh, you know, oh, wow. A whole weekend shot, you know, all, all, all the... Well, you know, all the rest of the kids are playing ball or doing some groovy thing, and I'm visiting Aunt Min, and it's sitting around. And I said, I hate that. Well, one one weekend, we were going to visit Aunt Min, as a matter of fact. Well, you're really bored. And so we go we go to, to Chicago. We're going to you know, visit him. He lives in this apartment. And we go up the stairs, get up there, and there's Uncle Carl sitting in there, and he's, you know, he's, he's all dressed up because we're visiting, and couple of people are over and it's a visiting day scene and the morning drags on and all of a sudden my uncle Carl says to my dad he says listen he said you want to go downstairs I'm going to show you something so the old man says yeah yeah because he was bored too see he says come on down he says bring the kid and at that moment I was treated to something which I had I I'll never forget it's a fantastic moment we went downstairs. Well, now, when you go to people's basement, what are you used to seeing in the basement? You know, tool, tool. They got a workbench, pile of tires in the corner, that kind of stuff. Well, in the basement of this apartment house, every every apartment, every every apartment had downstairs an assigned, well, it was like a like a a wooden closet, a big closet that went from the ceiling to the floor. You know, and they had a a wooden door on it. And it was like a little room, and you're you know supposed to store uh, uh, bicycles and old uh, footballs and uh, all your old furniture and junk and this stuff. Well, Uncle Carl's got a lock on his, as they all did, and his looked like all the rest, exactly like the rest. And he opens this lock and he looks around for us, see, make sure nobody else is down there. So he opens the lock, and he swings the door open, and me and my old man. Follow Uncle Carl quickly into the dark. He says, "Come on, let's come on inside." See, we go into the dark in this darkened room. It's made out of wood, and he closes the door and locks it from the inside. Then he puts a lock inside the one he took from the outside. Now he puts it inside. It's in the dark, and I, I, there was a curious smell in there that hit me right away. A curious, sweet, uh, a rich. Vaguely sickening smell, which as a little kid, I must have been about five, I had no idea what the hell it was. It was just very overpowering. And he throws on a light. He had this thing all built. It was a light up there. He had a little fluorescent light. He throws the light on, and it, it was fantastic. It was like a, a very private, it looked like a mad scientist laboratory. 
Now, I had never... My Uncle Carl was just this guy, you know, all of a sudden a very different type. He had built all around the side of this place, he built like a wooden shelf that stuck out maybe three or four feet from the wall, and it was braced with uh, big braces. It was like a table that ran all, like a U-shaped table is what it in effect was. And sunken down into this table, I can still see it in my mind, he had stone crocks, big ones. I mean, these things were like, well, you, have you seen the kind of crock that comes with marmalade? Well, these were stone, you know, these gray stone crocks like they make gallon jugs out of, and stone. And he had these things sunk into these shelves that had a big cutout, a, a, a circle, and he had them sunk down into there. There must have been about five of them, all in a line there. You could see why it was braced, see? And then over the tops of each one of these, this is what really fascinated me, he had like big rubber, it looked like a big rubber cap that was this light, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, this, this rubber they have that's a sterile rubber, it, it's used on things like babies' nipples and stuff like laboratory equipment, it's a kind of a light amber-colored rubber. Well, he had these big rubber caps that bulged up at the top with pipes that came out of it rubber pipes, and in these pipes, there there were meters. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what, you know, what these meters had, uh, actually uh, measured, but they were great big dials like you see in the in laboratories, and they had black numbers, and they had great big black needles out of it stuff. And so, down at the end, he had, he had all these crocks, see, and it was chilled in there. He had built a refrigeration unit. The room was chilled. And down at the end, he had these a great big crock that was that was sunken down, and this apparently was where he kept the the uh, the new beer, the beer which he had just made, and it was like aging or something. So he says to the old man, he says, "This is where I make it." And the old man looks at him and says, "What's that?" At the console room over there is where I put the mash in. He said, "Put the mash in over there, and it, uh, that's the first fermenting stage. It goes through here." And he says, a week later, I remove it and put it over here. And then he says, I have a certain amount of heat. My old man is standing with his eyes are, are big like like saucers looking at this thing. And Carl says, look, he says, I've got a new batch. Can you want to try some of it? And he's got, over in the corner, he's got this refrigerated thing. That's a, it's like a barrel, see, and it's filled with this beer. And it's got a spigot coming out of the side. Saying, he draws a great big thing of beer. He had these big tin mugs. They were tin. I remember the tin mugs. I have never seen any sense like that. And I later learned, by the way, this is used in many breweries. It's a professional type of, uh, of a glass they use. It's like they use it around their work, see? And it's, he, he pours this thing in a big head and he gives some to my old man. The old man tastes it. So he blows the top off. Oh, that's good. He says, that's real good, Carl. You're already doing great. And Carl, he, he draws himself one. He says, how about giving a kid some? So my old man says, well, you know, won't hurt him. So I tasted this beer. It was the first beer I ever had in my life. I never had beer before, and I tasted it. Of course, kids don't like beer, naturally. They really don't. At least most kids at first. Beer is like olives. It's an acquired taste. <clears throat> you know, tasted the... I was expecting something like Coke or, uh, you know, something like root beer. Somehow, you know, I, I thought it was Dad's old-fashioned root beer or something. It was actually Carl's old-fashioned beer beer is what I was drinking. See, oh, and it was bitter. And, and the old man says, oh, that's great. So the two of them sat down there. Carl had, had this old sofa in this place, 
And they sat down there, and they, they, they drank about three of these great big schooners of beer. And they're talking away there, and Carl, all the while, is telling them about the beer. And once in a while, one of these crocs would go... Make a sound. I remember it would go... And you'd see the rubber thing go up. It would just sort of expand with the gas in this beer. And as we sat there, all of us, and Carl said, well, you see, that's why I've got the, you see, it's, the place is all insulated here, see? And and he was so great with tools and stuff. My drunken Uncle Carl, he was truly in his nutty, crazy way, kind of a genius, that he had, he had completely insulated this place, and outside, you would never know but what he hasn't got old uh, bicycle tires and, uh, you know, old football stored in there. Actually, he had this whole little factory, and he made his own beer. Well, from that... You know, from that minute on, I was... <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, beer has always seemed to be a curious thing. And and uh, it was much more than just uh, always seeing beer as part of a six-pack. Uncle Carl became very famous. And he used to... Every party that was held for miles around that my old man was involved in, the whole thing was to go over to Carl's place and get some of Carl's beer. His beer was apparently magnificent. It is still a legend in the area where he lived. And one night, it came to an abrupt end. This is so often happens with genius. They press their luck. Let's face it. I mean, they, uh, the genius is always looking at the far horizons. He's always looking beyond the next hill. And one night, Uncle Carl attempted, apparently, a, a highly controversial and a very experimental batch. He was going to make some kind of special ale, which he had heard about. And it sat down in the basement for a couple of weeks. And one, two o'clock in the morning. Boom. It just blew the front off of that little house. It just busted up all those little old, those little old compartments down there. And all the used bicycles caught on fire. And beer flowed all over the floor. And Uncle Carl didn't even wait for them to put the whammy on he grabbed his wife, Aunt Min, and their two kids, and they left by the back door, and they never went back to get their... <laughs> because, you know, it's one thing making up a little batch of beer. There's a certain... You know that there are laws about how much you can make? Well, Uncle Carl went way beyond that. Uncle Carl was turning out enough beer to, to uh, apparently, to uh, run a rather, rather fine competitor to Pabst. I mean, he's turning this thing out by, by the barrels full down in the basement there. And he was selling it all over the place. He was, uh, well, there was, this was not during prohibition or anything like that, you know. So he was, he had a real great business going until that night. Boom. And so beer. Yeah, beer. You know how many gallons of beer are drunk in the United States alone every year? You curious? Would make a lake 14 miles long. Eight miles across and 12 miles deep. So you just can't put beer down, friends. I mean, a lot of times you even have trouble keeping it down. But uh, you just, to ignore beer is to ignore life. There ain't no way. No way. <laughs> W.O.R. New York, next, Lester Smith and the News.